Thank you, Sarah. Good morning. Welcome to Chapel Street Church, South Street Campus. Uh, before we worship together, just a couple of things this morning. First, uh, you're all aware, I'm sure, that Valentine's Day is coming up this week, and we have a couple of opportunities for you to um, express your heart uh, during Valentine's Day. Both of these little um, items are out at the kiosk in the lobby. You can pick them up after the service. But the first way is through Shepherd's Heart, which is our uh, food pantry and ministry of compassion down on the lower level of this campus. And then we have little cards out there that say, be a chapel on your street on one side. On the other side, they list the most needed items for the Shepherd's Heart ministry. So if you want to pick up one of those cards today, then you can pick up any or all of the items that are listed here, bring them back, drop them in the bins uh, just inside the front doors, and that way we can help replenish our Shepherd's Heart ministry, which these days is serving somewhere around 2,000 people every month. Uh, right down here in the lower level of this campus. The second way uh, is also called Be a Chapel on Your Street, and it's a way to express care for your neighbors. So this is a bigger flyer out there at the kiosk. In the back, there are stapled to it little packets of hot chocolate and a few ideas to reach out to those who live in your apartment building or in your, or in your neighborhood just to express care in a fun way uh, to them uh, on Valentine's Day or during this week. So thank you for that. Uh, the second thing I want to mention is that uh, Easter weekend is uh, uh, the last weekend in March. Uh, it'll be coming up before we know it. We actually will begin next week a new sermon series called Unrecognized King, which will lead us straight through the Easter uh, weekend. Um, but we also begin our Easter celebrations earlier in March with our Egg Extravaganza, which is a children's and family event. It takes place on two weekends, on Saturday, March the 9th at our Kessinger campus, and then the following Saturday, March 16th, at our North Aurora campus. Uh, you can find details on our website. Those are events for kids, grandkids, whole families uh, to begin our, our observation of and celebration of Christ's death and resurrection for us. So with those things in mind and heart, please stand now for our call to worship. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens... You are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the night become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well.
As we come to a time of prayer this morning, I have just a couple of concerns to mention to you as church family. First, uh, I got word this past week that uh, Rich Stover, and a uh, tender here at South Street, uh, lost a finger and damaged another in a table saw accident, I believe at home, uh, and he's um, being cared for, faces recovery, and we're praying for that that second finger is able to be restored. His wife's name is Jane. And then secondly, uh, Brian Harris, uh, son of Carol Harris, uh, and his family have been with us for some time now, and Brian has been hospitalized for a couple of weeks with an infection and now is in Mary and Joy for rehabilitation, so we'll pray for Brian and his family. And then also um, we'll pray for Jeff Krug and his family at the passing of his mother uh, this past week. And with those things in mind, would you bow with me for prayer? Lord, we thank you for the anthem presented to us by our sanctuary choir, O Lord, abide with me. You invite us to abide in you, but you promise to abide with us. The psalm we read at the beginning of the service said, If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. And so, Lord, we are so grateful we can come to you in honesty, confession, and prayer, in times of light and blessing and joy, and in times of darkness or loneliness or pain. And today we lift up to you uh, these who you already know and are caring for, we pray for Rich uh, with the accident he had this past week, uh, the trauma of that. We ha- find it difficult to imagine, but we pray that you will minister to he and his wife and family, that you'll encourage him, that the uh, surgery to save the second finger will be successful. Uh, we just trust him to you. We pray for Brian Harris and his family, that uh, we're grateful he can be in a place where he can be um, where he can regain strength, and we pray that he will do so quickly and be able to be home with his family. We pray for healing in his body and his life. And Lord, we thank you for uh, Jeff and his whole family, and we ask your peace and uh, care with them as they uh, mourn the passing of his mother. Uh, We also uh, know that you provide hope uh, in those situations, and we ask you to fill Jeff and his family with uh, your peace and hope during this time. Lord, we're also aware there are many, uh, some of whom are watching this service from a distance online because they can no longer attend here in person for a number of reasons. We ask you to remind them that they are seen and known by your spirit, that they are um, loved uh, by this church family, and uh, let them feel connected to us and to our worship, even as they watch from a distance uh, on a screen. So thank you for each one who is with us here this morning. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. We thank you that we can come to you, and we thank you that you are with us by your Spirit as we worship you together. So now we ask you to continue to do that through music and through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Uh, well, good morning again. Um, though I don't want to presume everyone knows me, uh, I'm John Dixon. I actually have a job teaching at Wheaton College, which is a great privilege. But uh, because I'm good mates with your pastor, Jeff, uh, I get lots of gigs here. So how cool is that? Uh, and uh, I'm particularly grateful to Pastor Brian for asking me to do three weeks in a row, of which this is uh, the third um, we're going to hear the Bible passage in a moment. Um, before that, some of you will know the name Edmund Hillary. Anyone know that name? Yeah, the, the most famous New Zealander probably ever. Uh, with his Sherpa guide, uh, Tenzin Norgay, in May 1953, they summited the highest point on planet Earth. They conquered Everest. And it was front page news everywhere in the world because people could hardly believe they did it. With the technology they, only, they had in 1953, it was a remarkable achievement. But what is less well known is that Edmund Hillary, basically for the rest of his life, tried to give back to the people of Nepal something of what they'd given him. They had given him worldwide fame. But he uh, just devoted himself to building hospitals and schools and orphanages to give back to the people of Nepal. And on one of his last trips to Nepal, at the base camp of Everest, at this elderly gentleman was there raising funds and some tourist climbers passed him and went, Whoa, that's Edmund Hillary. That's the man who first summited Everest. So they all gathered around him for a photo, as you would. And then one of them gave him an ice axe. You know, I'm not a climber, but you know, the axy thing that... Anyway, apparently. And uh, he held it in his hand. They all gathered around to take the photo. And then this other tourist climber was walking by, looked at the scene, didn't recognise who was in the middle, and walked up to Sir Edmund Hillary and said, excuse me, that's not how you hold an ice axe, let me show you. <laughs> and to everyone's stunned amazement, Sir Edmund Hillary just allowed him to adjust the grip of the ice axe. He thanked the man very much and went on with the photo. What a humble man. This man, everyone said, exemplified the virtue of humility. Someone who had achieved so much had been to the top of the world and yet served. He was self-effacing, never self-promoting, always wanting to serve. And our passage today, which Blake uh, will read in a moment, is arguably the most important passage about humility ever penned. What we're about to hear is Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, described as humble. And then we are urged to think his thoughts in our mind to be humble. And although we're used to it, the idea of humility, it was a turning point in the history of ethics. Because um, a well-kept secret about the ancient world, the word translated humility in the passage we're about to hear was not regarded as virtuous in antiquity. In Greece and Rome, humility was not a good thing. Take a look at this. Even in Greece, Perhaps the most ethically self-aware of all ancient cultures, humility played no part in the good life. Delphi was seen as the spiritual centre of the world. And the so-called maxims of Delphi were the epitome of Greek moral wisdom. The Delphic maxims are a summary of the good life in pithy form, just two or three words each. Know yourself. Actually, these words were inscribed on the temple behind me. Help your friends. Nothing to excess. Stop yourself killing. That's good advice. Honour good people. 
mete out justice. Don't mock the dead and don't let your reputation go. And on it goes for 147 lines. What's especially interesting is what's missing from the maxims. 147 pieces of moral advice and not even a hint of the ethic of humility we're so used to today. Humility in Greek and Roman ethics would be a degrading thing to put yourself down to a level that you were not born to or that your standing in life did not require you to be in was disgraceful and debasing. There was no virtue in it at all. So what happened? How did the West come to despise honour-seeking and prize humility? The evidence points firmly in one direction. Jesus of Nazareth. It's true that Jesus taught an ethic of humility. He once said, whoever wants to be great must be your servant. But it probably wasn't his teaching that changed things decisively. It was his death. It's difficult today to grasp just how much of a catastrophe Jesus' crucifixion was to those who loved him. To hear that a Messiah, a great king, uh, a, an important person was crucified, well, it would be nonsense to the Greek or the Roman ear. It couldn't make sense of it. In fact, Roman citizens were not crucified for that very reason. It was just so shameful. So for the gospel message to proclaim a crucified Lord, it, it upended the value system that the Romans held. Up ending the value system that the Romans held. Actually, that's a pretty good description of what Paul is doing in our passage. If you were here last week, you know that we spent some time, perhaps an inordinate amount of time, on what is the first command of the whole epistle, uh, Philippians 1 verse 27. And I made the point that it is probably the central command of the whole epistle. It's the theme of the whole epistle. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And uh, if you were here last week, you'll know, I pointed out that those five words, conduct yourself in a manner, translate one Greek verb. Do you remember? Politiu este, which is uh, the word that gives us the word politics, by the way, but it actually meant to citizenize which is not an English verb, right? So you can understand why the translators went for conduct yourselves in a manner. But Greek, uh, but Greek had this word for living as a citizen in the Roman Empire. And Paul uses this word to say, live as a citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live worthy of him, not of the Roman world. But here's something I didn't tell you last week. Even the word gospel that Paul uses here, in a manner worthy of the gospel, was used very frequently in Paul's day of announcements about the emperors. We're used to it just being a religious word. You think of gospel music. We Christians talk about believing in the gospel. Sure, that's cool. But in Paul's day, it was mostly associated with grand breaking news about the emperors. And just so you know, I'm not making this up. Here's an inscription that we know was penned just before Jesus was born, all about Emperor Augustus, the first great emperor in the Roman world. And here's what it says. The gods sent Caesar Augustus as a savior for us and for those who come after us to make war to cease to create peaceful order everywhere. And the birth of the divine Augustus marked the beginning of gospels for the world. Emperor Augustus was considered the savior of the Roman world who brought peace by his crushing military force. And that was his gospel. And this is the same emperor that I said last week, that elevated our little city of Philippi 
to the status of Roman colony, which made it a little Rome, which meant it had imperial benefaction, tax breaks, free land for retiring soldiers from the Roman army could all settle in Philippi. Philippi was a proud city. And still, Paul dares to say, citizenize, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Not of the gospel of the emperor, which is all about power and might, but the gospel of Christ, which is all about suffering, a cross, humility. And in our passage today, in case you were wondering if I'd ever get there, the Apostle Paul applies this idea of citizenizing worthy of the gospel of Christ to everyday life. And that's why the passage, as you'll hear, starts with a therefore. You are to citizenize worthy of Christ, and now chapter 2 begins with a therefore. This is what it means to citizenize worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you'll hear it's mostly about humility. Thanks, Blake. Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks, Blake. You can see how we're going to land on the theme of humility, right? But before Paul gets there, he's got a few things he wants to say. He begins with what looks like an allusion to the doctrine of the Trinity. That weird thing Christians believe, that the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Many experts detect in the first three clauses a reference to the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. You can see it, obviously, in line one, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that's God the Son. You can see it in the third line, if you have any sharing in the Spirit, that's obviously God the Holy Spirit. But the middle line, comfort from his love. Love in Paul's letters is almost always associated with the love of the Father. And so most scholars think what Paul is doing here is referring to the Trinity. And he does a very similar thing right across his letters, but there's a, a, a very interesting parallel at the end of 2 Corinthians, where Paul ends the letter by saying, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship or sharing, it's the same word, of the Holy Spirit be with you all. See, it's in the same order, Son, Father, Spirit, Son, Father, Spirit, and the Father is the source of all love. Now, you may think, that's too nerdy, John, that should just stay in Wheaton College, locked up in a box somewhere, but actually, I think it is powerful. Because Paul wants to ground his call for love and humility and unity and community in the, the very nature of God himself. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
three persons, one God. Now, I know that the doctrine of the Trinity messes with our heads, mathematically. You know, if a, if a friend who's not a believer says to you, can you explain the doctrine of the Trinity to me? You think, oh man, get me out of here. Because is God three or is God one? Yes. And atheists have a fun time with this. In fact, one of my favorite podcasts in our time uh, by uh, the BBC has a host, Melvin Bragg, who is an avowed atheist, and he has an episode that's sort of about the Trinity, and he describes the Trinity as that muddle Christians got themselves into. I'm not sure if you feel, you know, you sometimes feel that as well. But actually, our Muslim neighbors think it's even worse than a muddle. They describe it as a blasphemy in section five of the Quran. They do blaspheme who say, God is one of three in a trinity, for there is no God except one. I want to acknowledge that the doctrine of the trinity messes with our heads at the mathematical level. But... At the same time, the Trinity answers a more profound question that you may or may not have ever thought about, but it it has caused people who think philosophically to, to really wonder. The question is this. How can God be essentially and eternally loving if there was no other, no beloved in eternity to love or be loved by. Was God only potentially love in all eternity until he created other beings for him to love and love him back? If that's so, we could never say God is in his very being love. But can you see how the Trinity answers this? The Trinity says God is eternally, essentially, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, in a love relationship, sharing one substance. Yes, it messes with our head mathematically, but boy, it reassures us that at the heart of divinity, the heart of God, is loving unity. And it's out of this idea of divine trinity, triunity, that Christianity gets its massive emphasis on community, which is the second thing Paul says. See, he starts with the trinity, but then moves to human community as the reflection of the trinity. Look at all the ways Paul says the same thing. Now, when a preacher repeats himself over and over, you know he's really trying to drive the point home and can't really think of imaginative ways to do it. I don't want to accuse Paul of that, but he sort of does that. He says, basically, if you've tasted the Trinity, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, and then do nothing out of selfish ambition and so on. These are all basically just four different ways of saying the same thing. Same mind, same love, one. Basically, he's saying, you are diverse, but through love you can be one. One. And in Philippi, this, is, this must have had special resonance because we know about the founding of the church of Philippi. One of the cool things about the New Testament is that we've got all these letters by the apostles to different places like Philippi and Thessalonica and so on. But we also have the book of Acts which tells us the history of how those churches got founded. And in Acts chapter 16, we have the narration of how this church in Philippi started 10 years before this letter. And, and I just want to point out in this little summary that the first three converts were from radically different social ends of the Roman spectrum. The first three converts were Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, which makes her wealthy, The second convert is a female slave who had an evil spirit. Where would you place her in the hierarchy of ancient Rome? Right at the bottom. 
And then when Paul's sent to prison, uh, the jailer uh, was so wowed by what God did that he washed their wounds and immediately he and all his household were baptised. So you've got a jailer. So you have the top of Roman society in Lydia, the bottom in the slave girl, and right in the middle, a jailer, a Roman jailer. Now here's the thing. Ten years later, Paul says to this motley crew who come from right across the spectrum of the Roman world, he says, will you please be one? Lydia, I know you're at the top. I know you get invited to all the fancy banquets. But that slave girl, she's your sister in Christ. That's what's going on here. And in fact, uh, perhaps the greatest historian of ancient Christianity is Peter Brown of Princeton. And in one of his amazing books about the origins of Christianity, he says this was the key to Christianity's success in the ancient world. He has this lovely phrase. He says, Christian community offered a social and moral urban lung. And you might think, what does he mean? He means in the hierarchical, oppressive Roman world, when Christians walked into the church community, they could breathe. The tensions that were always going on at the upper echelons. When you got in church, you could breathe easy. The fears and anxieties of being at the bottom of the Roman world when you walked into church, and were treated as a brother or sister, you could breathe easy. May that be our story here at Chapel Street. We are diverse. Let's be one, having the same mind, the same love. You know, despite the many failures of Christianity to live up to this value, the hard data says, actually, the church is doing pretty well. Despite all the criticism we get, secular scholars still say there is nothing like church community in Australian or American society. You will never have heard of this man. He's quite famous in Australia, Andrew Lee. He's an academic, but he's also a member of our government. He is the Assistant Secretary for Competition, Charity and Treasury. He's an atheist. He did his PhD at Harvard and came back to Australia. And he is arguably Australia's leading expert on what they call social capital, what binds societies together sociologically. And in his chapter on religion, he makes these remarkable statements. As an atheist, he writes, regular churchgoers are 16 percentage points more likely to have been involved in a voluntary activity and 22 percentage points more likely to have helped the needy. Those who attend church regularly are more likely to say that they can count among their friends a business owner, a manual worker or welfare recipient. Lydia, a jailer, the slave woman. Few other institutions, and in his book he basically says there's no other institution, are as effective in fostering this bridging social capital between rich and poor. Now that's Australia. But actually Andrew Lee did his PhD at Harvard under Robert Putnam, who has found exactly the same thing for American society. Robert Putnam is openly not religious. But in his book, American Grace, he outlines the evidence that churches are places where people can breathe with one another in all the diversity. And I tell you all that because I want to say, may the unity of the Trinity show itself in our community of love and oneness despite diversity. Having said all that, the church mustn't end up like another secular club, like just a charity organization. 
Because what grounds our community is our worship of the divinity of Jesus Christ. My third point. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindsets or thoughts as Jesus Christ. Look at this. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage and so on. Now, the reason I've indented this on the screen is because those of you who have like real Bibles open in front of you will know that they actually indent just verses 6 to 11 in printed Bibles as well. Uh, So there's an English printed Bible. You can see it's indented and put into stanzas. And you may not be able to see it on the screen. And if you don't have Greek, it'll be meaningless. But there's the Greek text as well on the far right of the screen. Uh, Even in the Greek text that scholars use uh, for their translations, these lines are indented and put into two stanzas. Why? Because suddenly Paul breaks out into what most scholars consider an early Christian hymn. We don't have the sheet music, right? So we don't know how it went. But here is an early Christian hymn to Christ as God, in very nature God. That chimes with some very early secular evidence we have about Christians singing hymns to Christ as God. Pliny the Younger was the Roman governor of what we call Turkey. And he persecuted the Christians. But we have one of his letters to Emperor Trajan asking for advice on how to persecute them because he's confused why he's killing Christians. Fair enough. And he writes in his letter to the emperor, The only thing I can find about them is that they sing hymns to Christ. (laughs) Here are his words. It was all the more necessary to extract the truth by torture from two slave women whom they call deaconesses. The sum total of their error or guilt amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn on a determined day and sung antiphonally. That means this side sings and then this side sings a reply. Do you know that? You know, like, kumbaya, my Lord. Kumbaya, kumbaya, my Lord. Ah, okay, there we are, uh, singing antiphonally. Um, <clears throat> that's just for free this morning. Uh, antiphonally, here it is, a hymn to Christ as God. A pagan governor says, the only thing I can work out that they do is they sing hymns to Christ as God. And the reason I'm laboring this point is because here's a hymn to Christ as God in our New Testament itself. The first stanza, verses six to eight, say that he is in very nature God. Jesus, very nature God. He's not a teacher. He's not a prophet. He is in very nature God. But he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage, to throw his weight around like the emperors do. No. So we learn that he humbled himself all the way to a cross. And then in the second stanza, he is exalted back to the divine throne. Um, He received the name that is above every name. By the way, that's not the name Jesus When it says he received the name that is above every name, I mean, every seventh boy in Palestine was called Jesus. Did you know that? Super popular name. So it's not the name Jesus. It's the name Lord, the name of God. And this is put super powerfully in verses 10 and 11. Because verses 10 and 11 of this hymn say of Jesus what was only said of the Lord God in the Old Testament. See these lines? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And then, verse 11, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, the divine name. That comes straight out of Isaiah 45, where the Lord says, before me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will acknowledge me. And this hymn to Christ says, no, that's Jesus. He is in very nature God. All this stuff about community is ultimately the overflow of our worship of Christ in all his divinity. If we want to foster community 
real Christian community rather than just being like a, you know, another charity club, which is cool, but it's not Christian community. If we want to be a true Christian community, we must first and foremost be worshippers of Christ the Lord. Then and only then will we be formed by the mind of Christ, which brings us to our final point. The mind of Christ is humility. You know, the most extraordinary thing about this hymn in Philippians 2 isn't that early Christians worship Jesus as God. Well, that's it's lovely to see and important to understand. But you know, the most amazing thing is that in the same breath, Christians could say, in very nature, God, and then very nature of a servant. And then go further and say, humbled himself. And then go even further and say, even death on a cross. We might be used to it with 2,000 years of Christianization, but this is outrageous in the ancient mind. Christians could say, God on a cross. Humility. Humility was not a virtue in Greek and Roman ethics. Sure, humility before the emperors was considered valuable. Of course, you should you know, debase yourself before the emperor in case he gets upset. But humility before your equal was unthinkable. Humility before one of your lessers like Lydia being humble toward the slave girl, totally outrageous. But here we're told, absolute majesty, Jesus Christ, entered the world as a servant, humbled himself all the way to the lowest point in the Roman world, a cross for us. Absolute majesty. Humble. Actually, that's a good definition of humility. Humility is so often misunderstood today as thinking less of yourself. That's not humility, friends. Um, do you think Jesus thought lowly about himself? Think Jesus went around with low self-esteem? I'm thinking no. I'm thinking he's walking around going, yeah, I made that. Yeah, I made that. But the, but the thing is, the thing about humility is humility refuses to promote self and instead is active in serving others. Active in service, passive in self-promotion. That's what humility is about. And that's the very structure of the hymn. Stanza one is about being active in service. Stanza two is about being passive in self-promotion. See, in stanza one, did you notice Jesus does everything? He's in very nature God. He didn't use it to his own advantage. He made himself nothing. No one made him nothing. He humbled himself. No one humbled him. He became obedient all the way to a cross. He's totally in charge, totally active in serving. But notice, he does nothing in stanza two. The stanza all about his exaltation, he does nothing. It's the Father who exalted him. It's the Father who bestowed on him the name above every name. Humility is not one virtue among many. It is the very mind and thought of the one we worship. It is the very content of our gospel of the crucified and risen Lord. And therefore, it is the very shape of Christian community. Active in service, passive in self-promotion, just like our Lord. And as soon as you know that, you see that that's exactly what Paul is asking of the Philippians 
in the verses I haven't reflected on yet that introduce the hymn. Look at this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Passive in self-promotion, in other words. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Active in service. Not looking to your own interests. Passive in self-promotion. But each of you to the interests of others. Active in serving. And then he links it to Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Our gospel is not about getting our own way with others. That's the gospel of Caesar. Our gospel is about a cross. It's about the highest Lord humbling himself to the lowest place for us. There's a little known fact about Sir Edmund Hillary. It's a fact that he himself tells in his account of conquering Everest. He took a little cross with him, a little crucifix tucked in his jacket. And he says that when he got to the summit of the earth, he knelt down and took out the cross and buried it in the snow. No one's ever found it. It's still up there. Think of this, friends. At the highest point on earth is a lowly cross. What an amazing picture of our upside-down gospel, of the highest Lord emptying himself for us. What an amazing picture of the Christian life. Passive in self-promotion, active in serving others. Friends, as we go through these strange and stressful times as a church but also as a society let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and his cross let's worship him and share in his mind of humility for his glory Lord, will you please, in your mercy, write these words, your word, on our hearts this morning that we might be all that you want us to be. Empower us by your spirit, Lord, to share the mind of Christ. In whose name we pray.
just before the benediction, remind you as you leave the sanctuary, stop by the little kiosk in the lobby, pick up your Be a Chapel on Your Street encouragement to help serve at Chapel's Heart and maybe even serve a neighbor in the coming days. And then uh, we also have prayer team members available here in the front every week. So if you have something you'd like to share in prayer with someone, uh, they'd be happy to pray with you up here in the front. Receive now the benediction. May we go now in the grace, love, and humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Amen. Have a great day. Thank you.